there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people about how they do their thing. Today, my guest is an author. His name is Brent Hardinger. He's written 14 books. His breakout novel was Geography Club, a young adult book that was later turned into a movie. And his most recent book is called The Otto Digmore Decision. It's a fun story of aspiring and friendship and struggle and... Hollywood intrigue set in the movie world. So uh, it's a lot of fun. But the other thing that I really was excited to talk to Brent about is he and his husband, Michael, who I've known for 20 years since they lived in Los Angeles, a few years ago, they started living as digital nomads. So they sold their place in Seattle and they've been living and working because they're writers, they can work remotely. They've just been working in all these different places around the world and traveling around. So I wanted to hear all about that because... It sounds like a very tempting uh, lifestyle experience. Um, so super fun to talk to him about that. All right, before we get to that, I want to let you know that the You Don't Know My Life virtual game nights are alive and well and kicking and rocking. So if you have an occasion you want to celebrate and people are social distancing or people are spread around in different parts of the country and you want to have fun together, you can do this. It's super fun. I host it. Um, I have a friend, uh, Felix, that runs the board. We have a cool board, an app. It's really, it's like a game show. Um, and you'll love it. So you can learn about that at youdon'tknowmylife.com. Uh, that's enough for the plugs. Here is Brent Hardinger. Coming to us via Skype from Port Townsend, Washington, one of my favorite little places, it's author and screenwriter, Brent Hardinger. Hello, Brent. Um, you're one of my favorite Great places. Country. Port Townsend. Right, yes, and, and we were just talking before the recording began that I think you stayed here many, many years ago. We had a mutual friend here in town. In town. Yes. And it is beautiful. Of course, it's raining. We were in, so we're digital nomads. We we are indefinite travelers now, which we'll talk about later, but yes. we had to come back because of COVID-19. We were in Austin, Texas, where everything is bright and sunny and prickly and every everything stings you and now right. we are back to the northwest where everything is sort of soft and gray and wet so you're <laughs> so getting kind of culture shock you're right? getting a lot of variety which is very good um right. you've been when you say we you're talking about your husband michael jensen who is also an author and i met you guys when you were living in la around 99 2000 does that sound right it does sound right and i I don't even want to think back that far because so it feels like, like so long ago. But yeah, twenty we, years. You were you were one of the first persons I think were first people we met when we moved to Los Angeles. We were there for a year and a half, right? And again, we had a mutual friend, and then we've stayed in touch all of these years. I know who was and our mutual friend. I was an author. Anyway, it was yeah. I don't know. Anyway, but well, I do feel a little bit like. I feel like that, uh, you know, that, that Sondheim song, I'm still here. We're still here after all these years. I know. All the it's ups good. and downs. We have survived. And in <laughs> we that, are like cockroaches. So we cannot be defeated. I, I, I think it's beautiful. And uh, I know your husband, Michael, was the editor of After Elton for a long time. And I worked yep. with him there. And yep. um, you've written 14 novels in that time, which is remarkable. Congrats. Thank you. Yes. I, yes, it's been a crazy, crazy ride. And sometimes I think, um, sometimes I think I have tried to do too many different things. Like if I had to do certain parts of my life or I would do like when you have a success in one area, 
the secret is to repeat that do something similar don't you know create a brand and that's not what i'm that's something i'm not very good at i've been sort of all over the map but uh, but artistically it's very satisfying and exciting so right. i don't have regrets in that respect but yeah uh, i write young adult novels i write new adult i've written thrillers i've written romance i've written mysteries i've written fantasy i'm kind of all over the place but like i said it's been satisfying artistically well your first book that i remember is Geography Club, is that right? It was the young adult, sort of early gay straight alliance kind of book. Right. Like, yeah. It's 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 weird. I don't know if you can realize it. It's it's weird to be old enough to sort of have a perspective because like society has not just shifted once, but like three times since I was younger. Yeah. And so in 2003, I published a book called Geography Club, and it it took my agent and I <clears throat> about. 10 years to sell the damn thing and they had no expectations at all and we were told over and over again there's no market for a book about gay teens um and then HarperCollins finally picked it up you know for a nothing advance um an editor um somehow got it through acquisitions and it came out in 2003 it was the day we went to war with Iraq I remember that and it was a it was a it was a big surprise hit I got an email from my editor the the day after the publication he said um I've got good news. Uh, we've already sold out the first printing, and we're going into a second printing. Oh, and I've got even more good news. Since we decided to go into the second printing, we've sold that out too, even though it's not printed yet, and we're going into a third printing. So by the end of the first week, it had gone into three printings. By the end of the um, first week, three printings. Yeah, and I, I mean, it was a sort of thing... I don't know. I mean, I think I wrote an okay book, but I think mostly I caught a wave. It was the exact moment in time when people were sort of receptive. You know, they say... Timing is everything in Hollywood and every, everywhere else. And, and it's true. I mean, I think I was lucky. And I mean, I worked my ass off. But I think I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. And that book really, really caught a wave. And we had like, you know, 10 inquiries from Hollywood. And then there it was under option for many, many years with different producers. And finally, it became a feature film in 2013. Um, and, you know, it was... <laughs> do you remember so all of this is happening the, the first month of publication and i remember thinking i've listened to all these writers bitch about how hard it is to get attention for their novels to you know to right. sell copies of the notes and it's so easy it's what not that hard at all about? Yeah. i don't get this at all and, and since then you know 13 novels later i understand oh it doesn't always work like that sometimes you don't get any attention at all sometimes it's like screaming into the void and that's right. that's the typical experience um, but I think at this point in my career, especially with my books, I'm sort of at a place where you, you know, you do what you can and then you, you know, you put it on a little raft and you push it out into the ocean and it'll either float or it'll sink. And there's really, I mean, you, you do the best job you can, you do book promotion, but I'm not sure anything really sells books except the zeitgeist, except, except the timing and random yeah. chance. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how I that's how I sleep at nights. It's like I do the best job I can and then I let it go. And yeah. it's on that little raft and sometimes it'll do great and sometimes it'll sink. And and you know, I, I'm happy with the work I do and if you touch one reader, you know, all that. Yeah. But for the most part, I'm much more zen because I feel you know, Americans are so big on self determination and you create your own destiny and, yes. and the American you're responsible. Dream. And that's just bullshit in the arts. <laughs> I mean that's where I'm at these days. I love it. Just, <laughs> um, and I think a lot of first-time writers are like me. You know, if you have success out of the gate, you think, oh, I deserve the success. Or right. if you fail out of the gate, you think, oh, I deserve this failure. And it's so much bigger than that. It's like 
Don't give up either way. I mean, don't get cocky yeah. if you're successful. Don't give up if you're not successful. If you're if you're if you're if you're a born artist, you, know, you really have no choice. I mean, that cliche is true too. Um, and if you if you can't take it, that's okay. I don't I don't judge anything anymore. You know, if people say this is bullshit, I quit. I respect that because I get how hard it is and how soul deadening it is and and liberating and euphoric and all of that too. But it's it's high highs and low lows and and I don't judge whatever anybody does to survive in this business. <laughs> yeah, no, you got to keep it going. Um, now your latest book is the Otto Digmore decision, and it's characters that have spun off repeat multiple times from that first book, right? Is, is that the right. beginning of the, the Russell Middlebrook stories? And then talk to me about the journey from that first book to this book. So Russell Middlebrook is the main character of Geography Club. And then yeah. I wrote a series of sequels uh, about Russell and his friends. So those were technically young adult novels about Russell and his friends as when they're teenagers. And then at some point, you know, when the feature film came out in 2013, I thought... You know, I, I'd like to revisit these characters, but I don't want to... I've said everything I have to say about them as teenagers, and the world is so different now. Right. And I need to acknowledge that. And so I aged them, and then suddenly these same characters are in their early 20s, and I did another series called Russell Middlebrook, The Futon Years, about Russell and his friends in their early to mid-20s. And then one of Russell's friends, Otto Digmore, who is a burn survivor, so he's got burn scars on one half of his face and he's trying to make it as an actor in hollywood i really like this character a lot of readers like this character so i turned that into his own dedicated series a couple years ago and then the last book it's two book series and the second book came out earlier this year and I, that was a lot of fun because i was able to write sort of a satire of hollywood based on a lot of my experiences in hollywood um one of the books so one of the Russell books, one of the earlier books, is called Barefoot in the City of Broken Dreams. And it's sort of based on the time when I first knew you. It was my, right. based on my experiences in Hollywood, how I met this sort of washed-up has-been producer who wanted to produce a screenplay of mine. And he invited me to his sort of mansion-like house off of Sunset Boulevard. And he had a personal assistant. And it was a very surreal experience. And about two-thirds of the way through... I realized I was living out the plot of the movie Sunset Boulevard, and right. you know, this guy was Norma Desmond, and he was, boy, he was bonkers. Right. And, <laughs> and then, of course, you know, I won't, no spoiler alert, it did sort of end, I'm alive. It didn't end exactly like Sunset Boulevard. I didn't end up floating dead in a pool. Right. But um, I did get to write about sort of my experiences about the craziness of, uh, in Hollywood trying to make movies. So these latest books about Otto Digmore... Otto is an actor, and Russell Middlebrook, his best friend, is now a screenwriter, such as myself. So I was able to write about their experience. Otto's trying to make it as an actor, despite you know being uh, disabled. Russell is trying to make it as a screenwriter, even you know he's a gay screenwriter. And I was able to write about a lot of my experiences. And so I had a, they were fun books to write. I really enjoyed, you know, write what you know. So I did. <laughs> what has it been like to grow up with your readers, like? To, to, if they followed your books, they're kind of growing up along the same time as your characters. How does that work? Yeah, I, I am so flattered and honored that people have followed me all this way. I said before that, you know, I sort of written all over the place. But in this one thing, I've really gotten a chance to go deep into this particular character and these themes. And so the, the latest books, the first books were published by HarperCollins. But then the later books I self-published, which was an interesting experiment 
in that I was writing in real time. So I was able to publish them basically four months after I finished writing them, after they were edited. Right. And these latest books, so this latest book, um, Russell has this sense of foreboding about, so this book which came out in January, and Russell has this sense of foreboding that the world is, he's sensing this great tragedy in the future. And a reader just wrote to me last week and said, how did you predict, you wrote this before COVID-19 and before Black Lives Matter and all that, right? And it's like, I did, and I'm, I'm rather, I was rather proud of it. I mean, I guess it doesn't take a genius to know that Trump was gonna fuck all this up. Right. Um, but, but there, know, there, so there was Russell something all, ahead, yeah. Right, it was, and I didn't, I'm not Nostradamus, I didn't pr- literally predict the details, but I did predict that everything was gonna collapse. And it was, it was fun, like I said, it was fun to be able to write in real time. And, and you know, I mean, the, when, when uh, writing the earlier Russell books, you know, I was able, you know, prep is going on. People are talking about prep. How is that going to change dating and relationships in the gay community? I was able to have, you know, Russell deals with that issue. And I'm able to comment in real time, which you can't usually do in a novel because a novel, most people may not know, but a novel is usually written two years before publication. And when you're talking about a screenplay, my God, screenplays are written, you know, two to 10 years before they're actually released. And so, you know, you're trying to be, you're trying to comment on the zeitgeist. You're trying to be timely and say something, speak to current events. But it's hard to do in most traditional platforms. Yeah. But because I self-published these other books, I, I, I was able to do it. And and I don't think I, you know, I, I sort of had my pulse. I had my finger on the pulse. So I'm, I'm kind of proud of that. But. That's awesome. You don't have to go into detail, but what, how was it as a business decision to go to go from something like HarperCollins to self-publishing? Okay, so I will I will make this brief. Uh, I'm really glad I did it because there was a moment in time when self-publishing was like the gold rush. And basically there was this enormous uh, need for content, but there wasn't very much of it yet. We're talking like anywhere between 2011 and 2014. Right. And then I had the publicity from the feature film and I was sort of a known quantity. And I made more money off the self-published books than I did traditionally publishing books. I mean, I mean, I made a shitload of money. Now it's a different world. Now, you know, they say the gold rush, the money's made the first few years, and then the money is made selling picks and shovels to the people who want to dig for gold. Well, that's where we are with self-publishing these days. And I think you, in order to break through the clutter and the deluge of content, right? you need, I mean, you need a really, really, really marketable book or a really, really popular genre i mean like i i wouldn't do it i wouldn't do it right now i mean i'm continuing this series although i i don't know that i'll be writing any more books about russell and i mean people think i hear people talk a lot of smack about traditional publishing and there is still money to be made there and the imprimatur of a major publisher really does make a difference in terms of getting reviews and attention so it's that's not a dead I mean, I have a lot of complaints about traditional publishing, but there's a place for it. Um, I am a hybrid author. Like I said, I I mean, people self-publishing these days, it's a very, 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 very specific thing. And you really have to know how to make it work if you're going to do it. And otherwise, I I mean, the fact is, it's hard to get attention for your art. It always has been. It always will be because everybody wants to do what we do. And they want to get paid for it. And that's that will always be hard. There was a brief window, like I said, when uh, supply, when demand exceeded supply. And I was able to ride that wave, too. But that is no longer true. And so now, like everything in life, 
you know, you really, really need to be smart about what you do. But I did it, and, you know, like I said, I'm still here. I, I survived, and I'm glad. You're doing the thing. Sometimes that's the most uh, important thing. You get to do the thing. Uh, yes, that's right. Now, your character Otto ha- is, uh, has a burn, burnt face, is a burn victim. Have you heard from readers that relate to that, and uh, has that been uh, kind of a moving thing to, to share with them? I, I've never I've heard from disabled people, and it is extremely. And I, ha, I have had um, uh, burn survivors come to readings of mine, which I find gratifying. I mean, it's funny, you know, we do so many things uh, in our innocence. I'm not sure, you know, in, in the era of own voices, I would do way more research. I did a lot of research, but I, I would do way more research. Right, because you have and to get it I right, even, too. Yeah, I want to get it right, and I think I did. And I talked to people online, and and I, but I, I, you know, we're in a different era now, um, and I am really glad that I have gotten sort of cred from people who have lived this story. That makes me feel good. Um, but at the same time, it's it's a, it's another thing. It's a different world now. Um, I mean, technically, I think Otto Digmore was. The one of the first uh, disabled gay protagonists in YA literature. You know, the first the first time he appeared was one of the books that HarperCollins published back in 2005. And uh, so again, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that uh, I was sort of a, a pioneer. Uh, but that, that that said, I, I I strongly support letting people tell their own stories and and i hope people have been inspired i know people have been people have told me that that they've been inspired because of what i wrote to write their own story their own disabled story or whatever it is and i think that's awesome that's incredibly flattering um now your book has some oscar academy award intrigue and you know i love that stuff um <laughs> so and judging by your what you write about you're very intrigued with hollywood and movie making and all of it but i also remember you guys were ready to get the hell out of here so what is your um, relationship to Hollywood and Los Angeles as a place and as a, as a business? You know, I, I, I have a lot of friends such as yourself who live there and they love it. I think you're all crazy. Right. I, I'm just, you know, we've spent the last three years traveling the world and I hate cars. I hate, a city can't be livable if it's based around cars, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. And we've lived in all these fantastic European cities and South American cities that are walkable or they have these fantastic transportation systems. And I just never, I remember I, remember I went to a party once and people were complaining about the injuries, their injuries from their car crashes, all the car crashes they'd been in. And literally everybody had been in a car crash. And I was reminded of that scene in Jaws, you know, when uh, Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss, they're comparing the sharks, sharks, shark yeah. attacks, shark scars. And it's like, I'm thinking to myself then, and I still, that's in the book, that's in, that is in the boat, the book. And I think, you people are nuts. You know, you don't have to live in a city where you get in car crashes you know, four times a year where you're stuck in traffic. And, and I mean, that's part of the reason why we left Seattle, too, that every time I remember when we were living in Los Angeles, there would be like some great screenwriting seminar, you know, Steven Spielberg and and uh, Joseph Mankiewicz. Or, you know, there'd be like six of these great writers giving a seminar. But it would be like I would think, oh. It's two hours away. It'll probably be, you know, if I get stuck in traffic, it'll be three hours, you know, one way. And then I'm thinking, do I want to sit in six hours of traffic just to see, you know, to meet Steve? And it, and it, after a while, it, it just sort of wore us down. And so, but I, I think, 
And I know there's a lot of pros and cons or two schools of thought about whether or not you can have a successful screenwriting career and not live in Hollywood. And I, I'm one of the people who think, yeah, you probably should move to Hollywood. You probably should move to Los Angeles. Um, that said, for our own sanity, we did leave. And I've, you know, I've managed to, you know, I probably made, again, it probably wasn't the best career choice we've ever made, but for our own sanity. I yeah, we, you guys were done. I remember that. Yeah, um, yeah. But you've had Sorry. two, you've had a lot of scripts optioned and you've had two movies made, uh, Geography Club, and then you have another one, I think, that's already been shot but hasn't come out yet. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So um, I wrote a book called uh, Project Payday, which is um, I wanted to write sort of a uh, version of the Goonies that wasn't like racist and sexist and body shaming. And, and so I, I wrote sort of a retro book about three early teenagers you know that's the other thing everything in hollywood and everything in books it's either about innocent young kids or really edgy older teens and i wanted to sort of target the in-between age and like 14 15 year olds right so i wrote this book that's sort of a cross between stranger things and goonies um before stranger things came out and i thought i, I liked it um came out proper collins published it i think this was 2007 but my editor had been had left, uh, and the book was orphaned, which means it didn't really have an advocate. It sold okay, and then it sort of disappeared. And unlike Jarvie Club, there were no sort of movie inquiries. And I thought, no, I think that there's something here. So I wrote my own screenplay. On spec. And then I, uh, yeah. And I pitched it myself, and I figured I'm not even going to tell them that it's based on a novel because the novel was not a particularly successful book. I don't think it'll help me and right. the, you know the screenplay hopefully will stand on its own and, and so I pitched it around and I found a, an indie producer who uh, we developed it for three years then he got the financing we filmed last year and that was a lot of fun and then it, I think the release was this summer but I think COVID-19 has re- has screwed all that up and I if I had to predict I think it'll it'll now debut on one of the streaming services but I, I don't know and it's called um, Project Payday Project Payday yeah so these three set? kids are are um their parents tell them they have to get summer jobs. They don't want to get summer jobs, so they invent fake jobs, and then they embark on a series of uh, sort of get-rich-quick schemes in order to make the money that they would be making from their summer jobs. But, of course, all of their schemes don't work, and they end up working a lot harder than they would have if they'd just gotten jobs in the first place. It's sort of a comedy of errors, and in the process, they sort of involve that. Uh, they sort of solve this local mystery. They spend a lot of time riding around town on their bikes. I'm, I, uh, It was a lot of fun, and you know, you know what it's like making movies is so hard it's so complicated but on the other hand it's a thing of real beauty too because you know every now and then you know i was on the set most of the shoot and every now and then you sort of sit back and you look and it's like wow there are 40 crew members and 16 actors and there's you know extras and they're all doing this because it's something i wrote yeah they're all like acting out words that i wrote and it's just I mean, it's so different from writing a novel where you're sort of the master of the universe. When you're writing a screenplay, you are doing it in collaboration with the director, the producer, the actors, and the set designer, and the sound designer, and all of that lighting designer. And while that can be frustrating, it can also be this incredibly interesting thing where people are taking your words places that you never would have imagined. And everybody's, you know, in the best of worlds, everybody is contributing really great ideas. And then you are part of this collaborative thing that is artistically also really really interesting I'm, i have not seen the the edit of the film and i'm i'm dying to but uh 
Well, I'm excited. I'll, I'll keep an eye out for it. So, in 2017, you and your husband, Michael, moved, left Seattle and started living as digital nomads. So, the night that Trump was elected, we were driving home from an election party in very, very, very foul moods. And we were thinking, what the hell is going to happen to the world? And more than anything, you know, we'd spent the whole year sort of obsessing about politics. And I turned to Michael and I said, let's just leave. Let's just leave the country. And um, and he said, well, okay, where would we live? And I said, I don't know. We'll just travel around. And if we find a country we like, we'll stay. And he's like, okay, you know, all right. <laughs> we talked about traveling like this before. And, and we didn't really... We didn't really have a word for what we were doing. It's like, well, where are we going to live? Are we going to be lonely? I mean, how do you get visas? We don't really... Michael speaks a little Russian and I speak a little Spanish, but how are we going to get by? And then as we researched, it took us about a year to sort of sell our house and downsize. And as we researched this, about six months in, Michael came across an article in the New York Times talking about something called digital nomads, which are basically people who travel continuously and then work remotely. And he's like, oh... This is this sounds like what we want to do. Yeah. So sure enough, um, you know, then suddenly once we had a word to describe what we were doing, we sort of relaxed a little bit. And although it was interesting, it was literally exactly what we were planning on doing, even though we didn't know other people were doing it, too, and had been doing it. You know, people have always done it. But the last 10 years, it's really become a global movement. So we sort of tapped into this community and. We move to a new country. Sometimes we stay in co-housing that's specifically designed for digital nomads where you have your own sort of ensuite bedroom and then you have a communal kitchen and a communal co-working space. Sometimes we'll move to a country and we'll get our own apartment for anywhere from one to three months and you know go and do the co-working and meet up with expats or locals, meet people online. And uh, so, so far, we, we've lived in Miami, Florida. We lived in Malta. We lived in Italy. We lived in Bulgaria. We lived in Switzerland. We lived in Thailand. We lived in Vietnam. And I'm probably forgetting lots of other Georgia, places. Georgia? You lived in, you Mexico, lived in Georgia, City. the country of Georgia. Georgia, Georgia Tbilisi, Tbilisi in the Eastern Europe, which we loved. And, you know, we've, we've sort of tapped, like I said, we've tapped into this, um, this digital nomad community, uh, many of whom are younger than we are. Uh, and that's been interesting too. You know, most of our friends in Seattle were our age and most of the nomad community, they tend to be in their 20s and 30s. But it's very, they're, they're very, you know, it's the island of misfit toys. Everybody, you know, nobody leaves home if they're content with their life. So everybody leaves home because they feel like they don't quite fit in, you know, and they right. want to they're change. For some, they're searching for something. Exactly. So even though superficially, you know, they may be from a different country, uh, they're a different age, we really feel, ironically, that we've sort of found our tribe. And the other thing is, I spent so much of my life, you know, in Los Angeles and in New York publishing. And frankly, you know, people are so driven and frankly a little judgy, you know, how successful are you? There's that whole networking thing where everybody looks at you and how can you help me? Right. And you don't really realize until you get out of it how sort of taxing and oppressive that can be. And in Los Angeles, the youth thing, people are judging you and how you look and how you dress and all of that. And, you know, the nomad community, it is what you see is what you get. They take you as you are. And if you're a dick then you're not going to fit in. Um, but I, we honestly, I feel like we really have finally found our tribe. And, you know, now we, 
we often rendezvous with friends. We'll decide to be in a certain city in a certain month, and then our friends will join us there. And honestly, we're more social now. Both of us consider ourselves to be introverts, but we are, like in Tbilisi, Georgia, for example, I swear to God, we went out to dinner, you know, five nights a week. And uh, so it's, it was nice to be able to sort of reinvent ourselves this late in life. And, I, you know, COVID-19 sort of brought an end to this temporarily, I hope. Yeah. Uh, I hope that there will be a new beginning, in part because, you know, we've met people all over the world who depend on tourism, and that breaks my heart. You know, how are they going to survive? Um, but it's been a great thing. We've absolutely loved it, and it's been great fodder for the writing, too. Yeah, I, I read some of your blog posts. You said it's changed your relationship to your writing. In very, very much so. I, I like to say, you know, so I'm working. I've been working on this, um, been working on this screenplay called The Starfish Scream since it was first optioned in 2009, and it's so it's a sort of a teen drama where a guy's best friend commits suicide and then the main character sort of searches is a memory play memory screenplay so he searches his memories of their year they spent a year together why would he have killed himself and it's kind of a mystery you know and it's sort of a love story too and and ultimately you know it's it's very life affirming and it's very much about one guy the one guy teaching the guy who's alive how to embrace life and 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 how to you know how to live life and I have been working on this project for so long. It's been 11 years now. And in fact, ironically, just uh, last month, um, it looks like we're finally moving forward. But, but all year long, or all these last three years, I've been working on this project. And at some point, I sort of had the epiphany, wait a minute. I'm writing this screenplay about one guy teaching another guy on how to embrace life and how to live life and how to, how to make the most of your time on Earth. And I'm obsessing about this, getting this freaking movie made. And there's like a real irony there. It's like, what's more important to write about encouraging people to embrace life or to actually embrace life? And so it's not like I still care about my writing and I'm flattered that anybody takes me seriously, you know, takes my writing seriously. And I, that that gives me joy but I, care, I guess I do care a lot less because of the rest of my life, whereas my life used to be about writing and then the time I took off from writing to sort of relax from all the time I spent writing, now writing is just sort of like one-fifth of my life. And, and our life has become, and I don't want to be braggy, I'm really not trying to be braggy, but our life is so rich. You know, we're, we're seeing all these beautiful cities and meeting all these great people and constantly traveling. And life is so much richer now that I can't help but think writing is less important. It's like if I, I swear to God, four years ago, if you had told me, well, this movie's never going to get made, will you still be happy? And I'd be like, no, I can't be happy unless this movie gets made. Right. And now it's like, if this movie doesn't get made, can you be happy? Oh, fuck yes. Yeah, I'm, gonna be, I'm going to dinner five nights I'm, a week. I'm going to be. What, <laughs> what idiot would say no? What idiot would, yeah. would put your happiness contingent on some external thing? That's crazy. Yeah. That's the definition of insanity. And so it has, it, like, you, like you said, it has changed my relationship with my writing and that I still care but I don't care that much because life, you know, life is so finite and it's so short. The older I get, the faster it seems to go. And it's like, I'm, I'm not going to sacrifice my happiness. That's what? Are you kidding? Yeah. Um, and, and also, ironically, I, I wrote a screenplay about being a digital nomad. And that uh, got picked up, too. That's under option now, too. And, and um, so, ironically, 
by sort of easing off the gas pedal, um, I stumbled upon, you know, I, uh, success, there are two ways to find success, I think, in writing. You can, you can sort of sell out and write what you think will make lots of money, and sometimes that works. Or you can try to be authentic and actually say something that you think is true. And and sometimes that works, too. I mean, I think both work. You know, you can be um, you can people are going to look at your project and they're going to think, oh, I'm going to make that because I think that'll make me a lot of money. Or they can look at your project and think, I'm going to make that because I really believe in this project. And and this is my passion project. And those are sort of the, the two really probably the, the only two ways things get made. And at this point. I've tried selling out, and I, again, I'm not judging people who do sell out, but uh, it didn't work for me. You know, all the projects that I wrote where I tried to write something that I thought would be marketable didn't really work, didn't really go anywhere. And all of the projects, you know, from Geography Club to Nomads to the Starfish Scream, all of these projects where I'm writing something that I truly believe about life, those are the ones that seem to be getting made. So I think there's some sort of lesson there. Yeah, that and people anyway, respond yeah. to things that are authentic, that yeah. come from the right I mean, place. We are we are artists. We are we have. I mean, if we wanted to make money, we would not be doing this. We yeah. would be selling shoes or something, or we'd be working in a startup. I mean, I mean we're doing this because we have some sort of calling and some sort of message to give the world some sort of truth we want to relate and that's i guess that's sort of the other thing that the these last three years have have reminded me it's like you know so there's that (laughs) now do you hang out mostly with other nomads or do you make friends with people that live in the places that you go or is it a mix it's 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 often a mix um in some countries we have made a lot of friends with with locals. Sometimes we'll meet people in the gay community. Sometimes we'll just meet people in the tourism industry. Um, and you know, I love that. But I think the reality is, the people we meet, uh, you know, our language is you know my Thai is I don't speak Thai. I don't speak Vietnamese. Right. So we're sort of meeting people who. Uh, have a Western sensibility who speak English, but still, it's awesome. It's been fantastic. And I used to have this idea of people like most people are sort of selfish jerks and traveling the world and meeting people. It's like, no, actually, that's not true. I mean, most people are really open hearted. And once you get outside of the tourist areas where people are understandably sick and tired of tourists, you go to local communities People are usually really proud of their city and their country, and they really want to meet people from, I mean, unbelievably, America still has a lot of cachet around the world, and people like to meet Americans, and people say, what the hell is going on? Please explain Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, and and I think a little bit like the nomad community, I feel, I, I feel like, uh, you know, I've really connected to... I feel like I'm a citizen of the world. I feel like I have more in common with a lot of like our friends in Vietnam or our friends in Thailand or our friends in Tbilisi or our friends in Italy. And we really are more alike than we are different. I mean, you can focus on the differences, which are fascinating, and that's wonderful too. I mean, that's the thing. You know, as an American, we have this arrogant idea that we are like the best at everything. It's so annoying. It really is because it's... A a politician has to say we're the best country in the world or they can't get elected and it's that's embarrassing just, it's, it's just embarrassing like, yeah, and it, calm down it feels 
It feels like, uh, you know, Donald Trump seems so pathetically insecure when he says, oh, I'm brilliant. I'm a very stable genius. America feels like that, too. He's like the perfect representation of America in that he's really insecure. And the reality is there are so many ways to live in the world. There are so many ways to cook, and they're all beautiful. Yeah. And they're all different. And I like some aspects better than others. You know, I like Thai cooking. Everybody likes Thai cooking. I like Italian cooking. They do that well. But every culture, there is something beautiful about it. And there's something annoying about it. I would say every culture has good parts and bad parts. And and the fascination is in the differences and the beauty is in the differences and the the beauty is in the similarities. And we're all just trying to get by. We're all just trying to live in this world. And I mean, Michael and I frequently say to each other, everybody loves their kids. Everybody wants their kids. Wherever you go in the world, everybody just wants their kids to be safe. They just want their kids to be fed. And when you look at humanity like that, that we're all just trying to survive. We're all just trying to feed our kids and be happy and be content and arrange food and spices in a different way to give ourselves amusement and play instruments and laugh and smile and tell stories. And I mean, it's awesome. And if you can't, if you can't make that mental leap to appreciate the beauty and the differences in other cultures, I, I seriously think you're doing something wrong. I think you're doing humanity wrong because the point, clearly, it seems to me, is to not be so pathetically insecure that you have to be like the best and and it's like there it's stupid i mean when you when you meet people the whole idea of comparing them it just seems so ridiculous it's immature you know, every, it seems it's immature. it seems it, it, dopey it, and dumb it really is and and i mean if you can meet people as they are i mean you're a guest in their country and if you meet people with an open heart and an open mind they will reward you with their sort of authentic self. And you then you sort of see a little bit, you see yourself from a different point of view and you see your country from a different point of view. And it's awesome. You know, it's just awesome. Travel's great. Um, could I do it alone? What would it be like alone if you weren't with Michael? So we have a lot of single friends and there are definitely challenges. Uh, people say, you know, they come to a new country and... They think, ah, oh, I have to do this all over again. You know, I have to make a social circle all over again. Right. But I will say the way we do it in that, you know, rendezvousing with people we've met before, a lot of our single friends do do that. And it is a little bit like college, you know, the first the first week when you get to college and everybody is really receptive, really open to friendships because everybody's there on their own. And I think that's really true. So I think if you don't mind that I think a single person could do it. And I think, I mean, we have a lot of friends who love it. Uh, you probably have to be somewhat independent, somewhat intrepid. Right. Um, but, you know, the other thing is we, uh, you know, this is from a Western perspective and, and we are incredibly priv- privileged. But when you have a Western salary and you're traveling in some of these other countries, our cost of living is so unbelievably cheap. When we left Seattle, we thought, oh, gosh, I hope we can keep our cost of living the same as what we're spending in Seattle. Because, of course, I'm thinking travel would be like being on holiday. Yeah, you think it's going to be more. Right. And it's not at all. It's way, 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 way cheaper, even though, you know, we eat out, you know, if we're in a cheap country. Tbilisi, Georgia, fantastic food. And, you know, it's impossible to spend more than five or six dollars on dinner in a nice restaurant. Um, So you can have these fabulous meals every night with friends and and so the cost, our cost of living is actually less than half of what it was in Seattle. And, and we live 
you know, we don't really deprive ourselves. We are incredibly lucky to be able to do that because we have Western incomes and we recognize the privilege that comes with that. But that is that is the reality. A lot of our, we have a couple of friends um, who have decided they want to retire early. So they're doing living in cheaper countries like Bulgaria. We lived in Bulgaria, uh, Thailand, and they can live on, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year, live really, really well. And then they can put their money away and they can retire at age 45 or 50 or whatever. Um, so that's another. But it's hard to be lonely. I mean, if you open yourself up, um, it is pretty easy. I mean, and there is the problem of, you know, you meet a local person. This is another problem a lot of our single friends have. They meet a local person. Their visa expires after three or six months. And so then what happens? You know, it's hard to maintain a relationship. We have a lot of friends their boyfriend or girlfriend is a resident citizen of a different country and right. how do we so they're sort of constantly traveling around to a new country um, there are challenges but there are challenges you know michael and i have challenges too we're together all the time and sometimes we're in uh, you know studio apartments and but you make it work you make it work what's the craziest thing you've eaten uh we had 100 year old eggs in uh where where was that i think that was vietnam which is you know those putrefied eggs they're fermented eggs we've had uh cricket crickets and grubs and lots of insects in thailand by the way those hundred year old eggs are terrible i mean we have vietnamese friends who love them and i'm like really uh, <laughs> just terrible uh and um we haven't i i did not have I, I do not eat arachnids we have not had any spiders although we've seen those for sale um We've had, uh, we had, uh, you know, there's this idea that uh, the closer you get to local cooking, the more authentic the food is, the better it is. Right. And we've had some meals that are really, really authentic that, you know, like chicken heads, chicken feet. And it's like, uh, you know, I, I can't quite make this mental leap. And I am not judging, but for me, you know, I just, this is not, this is not for me. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, we've had, we've had, you know, if you're, you should at least try it. I guess that's the attitude. At least try it. And sometimes we've been pleasantly surprised. Yeah, sometimes it's an experience. If nothing so. else. Um, so you're you're working there. Tell me some places where you've opened up your laptop to work, and you're looking out at what. Oh gosh, uh, you know, in Thailand we're we're looking out at a at a rainforest, and you know the the, the every 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 couple of hours, a, a, a five-foot-long lizard will walk by. Um, <laughs> you know, beautiful, beautiful birds fluttering in the undergrowth. Um, you know, looking out at the beach uh, in Vietnam. Um, Tbilisi, Georgia. You know, I had this attitude. Michael and I are both children of the Cold War, so I had this attitude that Eastern Europe is really dirty and ugly, and you know, Chernobyl happened there, and and then we go there. So we lived in um, Bulgaria and Tbilisi, and then we've traveled to four or five or six or seven other Eastern European countries. And what I didn't realize is because of the Soviet Union, a lot of the forests were not developed. They're sort of pristine. So there are these beautiful mountains, beautiful forests, and there's this old world charm, you know, that it's like the land that time forgot, that these, there are 19th century villages that are, People still live in, in these, you know, in the Soviet Union, everything sort of paused. Obviously, some areas were developed, but a lot of it was just sort of forgotten. And so you have these incredibly beautiful wild areas, and you have these incredibly charming old cities. 
And, you know, cuisine becomes trendy in the United States. I mean, that's one thing I did love about Los Angeles, all the different cuisines. But there are some cuisines that haven't really hit, they haven't become popular yet, like Georgian or Armenian. Right. And Georgian food, for example, it is, it calls upon, it's not Greek, it's, um, it's not Middle Eastern, it's not Russian, it's not Mongolian, but it's a little bit of all of them together. It's unlike anything I had ever tasted. And I remember, so there are a lot of nutty sauces and a lot of cheeses and a, a lot of really complex flavors, a lot of breads and, um, and a lot of stewed vegetables and stewed meat. And I remember we, after like the fifth night out, we'd had all these really complicated dinners and all these great flavors and i said to a a friend i said well this is you know these are really great you know i'm thinking this is sort of pan georgian cuisine and they're trying to impress us you know with all these all these uh, weird experimentations i think this is really this has been really good but let's have authentic georgian food now and she said to me oh this is authentic georgian food they're not trying to impress you this is these incredibly rich sauces and these nutty flavors and these stewed vegetables this is what they eat yeah and it was like i i mean there is no georgian restaurant that i've ever eaten at so there was this whole cuisine with with armenia there there is this whole cuisine that i've that i've never and bulgaria too which is slightly different they're all sort of slightly different from each other and i i just loved it (laughs) you know um and everything was was so cheap so um tbilisi georgia is a place everybody should go it's a fantastic city i love it um where do they have the sexiest people oh man god uh so everybody all the men in georgia have beards even the twinks so yeah. it's really sort of interesting and they've got these dark swarthy good looks italian men of course they're yeah. adorable and they have these really great um you know sexy accents uh Switzerland and France, you know, you've got these lean, beautiful men. Um, all of the, all of the Middle East, you've got a dark, swarthy, good-looking men. Asia, I find Asian men to be, you know, really attractive too. Thai, the Thai people, in addition to having this fantastic food, they're all like stunningly beautiful. The men and women both are like ridiculously beautiful people. Um, Honestly, I guess maybe I'm just sort of a pervert, but everywhere I go, it feels like uh, Mexico. Uh, I, I, when we just were in Mexico City before we came home, and Mexican men are so handsome. You know, they're so beautiful and handsome, and they have this beautiful skin. Um, and everybody's so, you know, sort of Georgian men are sort of taciturn and gruff, and Mexican men are so exuberant and full of life, and Italian men too. Uh, and, and, you know, um, Asian men are often sort of demure, but confident, uh, everybody's a little different, but I guess it's like cuisine because I'm able, you know, I'm able to appreciate all flavors, I guess. (laughs) I love it. So when COVID hit, where were you and what was the plan? Were you like, we got to get back to the States? Well, so we were in Mexico city and we were loving it. So a friend of ours, had suggested, hey, I'm going to be Mexico City. Why don't you join us? And we're like, Mexico City, really? I, I mean, okay. I mean, I guess. And I didn't realize. I don't know if it's just rank American uh, uh, racism, or if it's because it's in our hemisphere, or what. But I've never really, 
I mean, I've been to Mexico, but I've never been to Mexico City. Yeah, I've been wanting this, to go there so much. It's, it's this beautiful, beautiful city. And there's so much to do. You know, it's 21 million people. And there's so much to do in all these ancient cities and canals and, and museums and parks and, you know, lush jungles in the middle of the city. And, and again, the, you know, Mexican, Tex-Mex is not Mexican. Everybody knows this. Like, American Italian food is not really Italian cuisine. It's fine. It can be good. But food in Italy is not all cheese and rich sauces. It's very, very different. And same thing with Mexican food. It's not all... It's not what you think. It's not American Mexican food. And so we're enjoying all of the food there. We're just having a great time. And then, of course, we, we start hearing about COVID-19. And we're thinking, ah, you know, I mean, at some point, countries are going to be locked down. Do we want to be locked down here? That Mexico is very poor. Mexico City is very poor. This probably wasn't the best place to be in the middle of a pandemic. So we decided to come back. We had a friend we were staying with in Mexico, and she, her parents had an empty house in Austin. She said, why don't you come, well, let's go live here for three or four months. So we did that. Then uh, finally we, we left uh, two weeks ago, and we've come back to the Northwest. And it's, you know, it's bittersweet. I don't want to stop doing this for a year. On the other hand, you know, I don't want to be a disease vector. I don't want to carry this disease. I want to be a responsible traveler. Yeah. Um, so we were planning to go to Portugal. That was our next stop, and we had reserved a place in Portugal, and then we were going to continue on um, back into Eastern Europe. Uh, we would still like to do that. We might go back to Bulgaria. That was a, there's a little peaceful mountain village where we stayed before. That would be a great place to wait out the pandemic. But yeah. you know, if we have to quarantine, quarantine. But it's a little discombobulating. And you know, now, you know, we don't really have a home. And this is the first time I've thought, well, it would be nice to have a place to hole up. Um, but, you know, everything is pros and cones. It's the first time you've missed the idea of having a home base. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. I mean, that said, I, I mean, it's going to be really hard for us to give up this lifestyle. I mean, all of my life I had heard about, like, the simple living movement, you know, get rid of your things and you feel liberated. And I'd think, oh, that's just sink. That's ridiculous. That's, yeah. that's crazy talk. And then once we started doing it, which we sort of did that by default, you sort of have to get rid of your stuff. And then if you buy something new, you literally have to get get rid of something old because we're carrying everything we own with us. Yeah. And at some point you realize, wow, material possessions really don't make you happy. And I know I, I never thought I would be this, that guy, but um, I don't, I, it'll be a while before I want to start nesting again before i want to start settling down yeah because there has been there's just this simplicity and this beautiful freedom to be able to go wherever and carry what you own with you and i don't want to give that up i mean if we have to we have to and uh you know i don't you know hopefully there'll be a vaccine soon but and I, i really do hope i really hope this doesn't change our view of foreigners. I mean, it's sort of like there are two paths in the forest at this point for humanity. We can sort of go into the darkness or go into the light and we can become xenophobic and blame other people and turn inward and, and start to see the, the other world as the rest of the world as scary and hostile and invasive. Or we can understand, we can move into the light and understand, hey, you know, we all share this planet and it's a beautiful thing. And how can we work together to solve our problems? And how can we, how can we see our common humanity? And I hope it does feel like no matter what happens, this is going to be a reset on the world. And I hope it's a reset for good and not a reset for bad. I mean, I can sort of see it going both ways. Yeah. 
but I'm going to do everything I can to make it a reset for good where we get in touch with our common humanity and it joins us together and brings us closer together. I mean, you know, let's say the thing. When you travel, you quickly realize that borders aren't real. They only exist on the map and in your head. Right. They And, and so the it, it's, it's an illusion. And once you sort of see that it's an illusion, you see that this is one world. And then you start to think, well, the borders between people, the borders between uh, races, those aren't really real either. Those are just constructs in our head. We're all the sort of the same underneath. And I mean, I don't want to get too esoteric, but it's a real thing. And, and it's so much easier to remember that yeah. when you are constantly being reminded. Do any of your digital nomad friends have pets or it feels like you couldn't? Because I have a dog. Yeah, you, you probably couldn't. Right. Although, I mean, I'm a huge cat person, and right. um, so I always bond with the the local cats. And then it's you know my heart is broken. Every then you time have to say goodbye. Home. Your tearful I know, goodbye. I know. Yeah. I know. And cats are <laughs> different countries treat their pets differently. You know, that's right. sort of fascinating in and of itself. And that's a little that can be a little heartbreaking too. Yeah. No, I think if you we waited, like I said, we talked about traveling in some form for a long time, and we had two cats, and we waited until they had both, both died, and then we didn't get new cats precisely yeah. for this reason. Um, yeah. So that is true. Because the point is you can you can have your pet needs met in other right. ways as you travel the world. Yeah, but reading your blogs, I was like, oh, that sounds like an amazing way to live. Um for people that don't know your work, what's a good project to start with if they want to pick up a book? Because I know a lot of yours are series um, or sequels or, you know, like that, that there's a thing. What's what's a good starter, Brent Hardinger? That's a really, that's a really good, that's a really good uh, question. So Geography Club is sort of probably my most famous book, but I also think at this point it's sort of dated. Um, if you're interested in the Russell books, uh, I think the thing I didn't know I didn't know right. is the title of uh, the book that is sort of the the first of the of the newer titles, the young, the new adult titles where Russell and I, it's a standalone. You don't need to have read the earlier books. Okay, cool. Um, and and I also write um, I also write other books. Grand and Humble is a book I wrote. It's a thriller. Um, Three Truths and a Lie is another thriller. Those are both young adult. Uh, Grand and Humble is another movie project I've been working on. Um, hopefully that will be filmed later this year. Um, but So that might be another starting point if, you're, if you like mysteries or thrillers. Three Truths and a Lie. Fun. Um, um, how disciplined are you on your writing when you're a digital nomad? So the beauty of it is you can sort of dive into a project and right. you can work for it. You work on it as long as you need to until it's done. And then you can take a week off. You can travel to Armenia. You can, you know, go to Greece. And Michael and I try to work it so we're both working on projects at the same time. Sometimes we will work, you know, for 10 days in a row and then we'll take time off. I, I honestly, I think I'm more focused uh, when I'm on the road because... You know, I want to get whatever I'm working on done so then I can go out to dinner with our friends or we can take a weekend trip. I do think I'm a little more focused. Um, I'm, I still wish I could be more focused. I wish I didn't procrastinate, but I guess we all wish that. Yeah. You know, it's hard what we do. No, um, that's part of it. Um, how has it changed your relationship? Oh, that's a good question. So you guys have been together how long? 27 years. Wow. I know. I know. I, we... When we first started going out, 
we were socializing with this other couple that had been together 16 years. And I remember that just blew my mind. I remember thinking, no way, nobody could ever be together that long, 16 years. And now here it is, 27 years. It's crazy. Yeah. It's like we've been together, you know, so, so long. But, you know, because we are both writers, we were always home together. And we were pretty confident. We get along pretty well. Um, We don't disagree a lot. We sort of share the same values. Occasionally, we get on each other's nerves. And I think maybe a little bit more now that we're traveling together. And sometimes we're in stressful situations. And we, you know, we snipe at each other and all of that. And then then later, we apologize and make up. And, and, you know, plus, um, I I think it has brought us closer together. I mean, I think we were 27 years. So I think we've managed to make... Most things. We managed to make it work. And I mean, I've always said, if, if the person you're with doesn't make you happy most of the time, then you're in, a, you're in the wrong relationship. That, I mean, right. The whole point of a relationship, it shouldn't be work. It should be joy. It should be fun most of the time. Right. That said, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes it is work. But for the most part, you know, we enjoy each other. And I've really enjoyed, you know, Michael was very much a loner when we lived in Seattle and he has discovered traveling the world. He's discovered he's much more social and people really like him. You know, I so was you're seeing other the, sides of him that you haven't seen. Exactly. Before. And I, I, I was always sort of the social mover in our relationships. Like, Oh, let's go out to dinner with so-and-so. And like, Michael's like, okay. And now, you know, people love Michael, you know, people light up when he walks in the room and I feel a little bit like, you know, I feel a little bit like the second banana, which is an interesting role reversal, but it's awesome. You know, it makes me, it reminds me, oh yeah, he is a great person. People really like him for a reason. And so he, it, just like travel makes me see myself and my country with new eyes, it makes me see Michael with new eyes too. And that's been, you know, that's been really nice. I love it. And you guys have also done cruises as part of your dig- digital nomading. And I have a cruise background, so I appreciate that. Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. I always think about that. Every time we're on a cruise, we think about your, your pilot and we think about uh, the stories you told us. Yeah, we, so because we're not paying a rent, it makes sense for us to take cruise ships between continents, or at least it did before COVID-19. Yeah. And it would actually save us money. You know, you throw the money that we would be spending on rent and on food and on entertainment and on airfare, when you throw that into a pot and and then you compare, it usually does save us money. We spent, so the first year, every year we spend about two months on cruise ships. Last year we spent two months and this year we spent two months or the last two years, we spent almost two months on cruise ships. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, it's not for everybody. I mean, right. Because we, you know, in order to do that, you can't really afford the drink packages and the internet right, right, right. price is insane. But, um, and we don't have like a, a suite, you know, we have a smaller cabin. But on the other hand, you know, we work in the library. Yeah. We can, there's an awesome state-of-the-art gym. There's great entertainment, great live music, and pretty good food. And You go to what, places you wouldn't go normally, like that, that's you know, right. where it's fun to spend a day, but, yeah. That's right. We uh, Have you been to Santorini in the Greek, Greek island? No, it's one of the Greek islands I missed. I did go to Mykonos and some of yes. the others. Santorini, it's, it's a, so it's like a caldera, is what I think they're called. It's like the... The town, it's all situated on the rim of a volcano, and then the center of the volcano is seawater. You know, it's collapsed on one side. Yeah. It is the most amazing thing I've ever seen, and, and I don't think we would have been there if we hadn't been on a cruise ship. Yeah. We've seen all, we went, first time we saw Malta was on a cruise ship, and then we went back to live for two months. Did you go um, on any Princess Cruises, or were they other cruise lines? 
We have done Princess. We've done Holland America. We've done. Who did you? I used to work for Princess. Oh, you did. Yeah, and then I created some shows for them a few years ago. Um, So so I was back. Do you still take cruises? What's that? Do you still take cruises now and then? I haven't, but I would like to. I I miss that world. Um, I hope it gets to recover somehow. I don't know. I don't Uh, know what they're going to do, but uh, it's it's crazy. Um, Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Uh, my last digital nomad question: How much Wi-Fi angst is there around it? Like, did they have <laughs> Wi-Fi? Is the good Wi-Fi? I lost the Wi-Fi, or like, you know, for you and, and your uh, fellow nomads? That is the single most important thing. I mean, that's more important than anything else. And I'm embarrassed to say there are countries. I mean, any big city is going to have pretty good, consistent Wi-Fi. But yeah. we have not gone places because the Wi-Fi is so crappy, and we have been in places where the Wi-Fi is not so great and we have not stayed because, I mean, that's important. I mean, it's less yeah. important for us because we don't need to constantly be checking in. Right. But for a lot of our friends who are coders and whatnot, they, they need stable, consistent Wi-Fi. I mean, although, you know, it's it's kind of pathetic. We were in, uh, we were in Bulgaria two years ago and, and we rode our bikes to the neighboring village and then we found this, like, little trail that wound up into these pristine mountains and we rode, you know, we rode all afternoon. So we, you know, probably written you know, 20 kilometers up in the mountains. We came across this this uh, little cafe up in the mountains and we went inside and free Wi-Fi. So yeah. it's like, no matter where you are, more and more, there's pretty good Wi-Fi. And I mean, I can't remember the last time. No, we did have an apartment that didn't have Wi-Fi. There was one apartment that didn't have Wi-Fi. But it's like running water. I mean, it is more important that we have good Wi-Fi than we'd be able to drink the tap water. You know, a lot of tap water, you, yeah. you can't drink. We can deal with that. But no Wi-Fi. Yeah, uh, is that's a, that's a deal breaker. What is the one thing from home that when you see it, you know you should be above it, but it's comforting? For example, Starbucks. <laughs> so I had a, you know, I had a bag of Doritos that was a transcendent experience. Yeah, you know, that I just the the shitty, salty, whatever, yes. gooey, cheesy. You just had to flavor. have it. Oh my god! Yeah. And, and it's like you'd think that that would be everywhere, but especially in Asian countries, they have like really weird flavors. I don't yeah. need to be judgy, but they have flavors that do not work for me. They'll be like, right. uh, you know, seaweed flavored Doritos or yeah. sushi flavored Doritos. So when I finally got, you know, in, in Mexico, I couldn't find Doritos. They have a unique flavor of Doritos in Mexico. Yeah. So, you know, you finally get that bag and it's like just the worst thing in the world, but the, the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. You're just like, I can't believe how good this is. I know. I love it. Um, <laughs> So how can people learn more about what you do? You, you have a great website, and I know you guys also have your, your um, Nomad blog. So so um, my personal website is my name, brenthardinger.com, and that is about my author-related activities. And then together, Michael and I run a blog called brentandmichaelaregoingplaces.com, which is uh, about our travel-related adventures. And then we also are on Instagram and Facebook and on Twitter if you want to follow along. And we are, you know, we're also very accessible if you have questions about nomading or if you have questions about any of my writing. Yeah, you have lots of practical advice about nomading on your stuff, which I thought was a great resource for people. Because, boy, it sounds so tempting to just go. Because I've been doing a lot of um, writing for podcasts lately, and I can do that anywhere pretty much. But uh, I have my dog and... Anyway, so, but it's something to think about. no rent control in Los Angeles, right? Well, I've had my condo for a long time, so my rent's not outrageous, but, 
Yeah, I just miss going places. You know, I it's do- funny. I think I think about of the people who follow us. I think about twenty percent are actual digital nomads or people who are really, really seriously considering it, and about eighty percent are people who are thinking about it long term or just following along vicariously and thinking, yeah. you know, what if? And and both are cool, and I think both are really, really interesting. And you know, I mean, people have kids and people have jobs and. And, but I am, you know, the thing I like to say to people, I am not a particularly intrepid, adventurous person. You know, I'm not a risk taker. Right. And I'm cautious. I, I'm, you know, I'm measured in life. And that I could do this and find it to be so not anxiety causing. I mean, our life on the road is so much less stressful than our life in Seattle because we don't have to deal with traffic. We don't have to deal with bills. And frankly, the cost of living is so much cheaper. So we don't have to deal with, it's not like this constant rat race to make more money. Yeah. You're not always worried about money. You're not. Yeah. Yeah. So we've completely stopped stressing about money, which has enabled, you know, we can both do the projects that we like now. We don't need, you know, it's less about making a living. We can work on whatever we like. Life is the pace of life. And I mean, you know, there's this idea in America that everybody around the world is envious of us and they can't wait to get here. Yeah. And there's some truth to that because there's obviously there's a lot of wealth in the United States and people do envy our wealth. But for the most part, people around the world think we're crazy. This whole work ethic, work, 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 work. They think we're crazy. Yeah. You know, and they, life is meant to be lived in life. You know, meals in Italy, of course they take two hours because meals should be appreciated. You don't eat at your desk. Yeah. You know, you take a two hour lunch break and you have wine and you talk and you enjoy life and you spend all this time in the kitchen. And that's, that's the norm in most of the world. You know, people work hard. But they also live hard in most of the world, even in poorer countries that, uh, you know, are doing subsistence living. They also are exuberant with life and they appreciate good food and good music and laughing and swimming. And and we're really the outliers. I don't think most Americans realize we're the massive outliers when it comes to that spectrum of working hard versus playing hard. Yeah. Nobody else lives like we do. And it's. It's really a, a con they've played. They've got us convinced. And, you know, whenever I, whenever we come back, I get sort of sucked up into that mindset, too, because it's so it's so intrinsic in the country. It's, it's just the way people think, and it's in the DNA of everything. Yeah, but competing. it's not real. Again, it's only in our minds. It's only yeah. in our minds. And you leave the country, and people look at you, you know, and you're constantly working. They think you're crazy. And you are crazy because yeah. we only have one life, you know? Um, before I let you go, tell me a good gay story about what you observed in the world. So when we were in uh, Tbilisi, Georgia, there is a there's a gay nightclub. Baso, I can't remember the name of it. Batami, Basami. Uh, so it's in what is it, Michael? Fasiani. So there is a, a, a famous nightclub that is in the bowels of the stadium, and it's a straight nightclub. 29 days a month and then one night a month it becomes a gay night and because Tbilisi is very homophobic you have to get a special code you need to they, they vet you and we happen to know uh, one of the organizers so we didn't have to provide you know our personal information or our passport number and all of that so he got us in but you still needed a special code because they don't want the homophobic people to come in they don't want the government to get in right and so you go to the nightclub, you know, and they don't open until 1 a.m., uh, and they put a little sticker over your smartphone so that you can't take pictures because they don't, people don't want to be outed. Wow. And uh, then, you know, it, there's 
this fantastic nightclub, you know, with the fog and the music and the vast dance floor. And, and so, like I said before, Georgians are sort of taciturn right. people, sort of reserved. Most Eastern Europeans are sort of reserved. And from our point of view, they can come across as sort of gruff. So we're in this nightclub with our friends and everybody's dancing and it's a cross section. You've got, you've got bears and you've got twinks and you've got uh, transgender and, and, you know, you've got lesbians and, and everybody is there in the moment and sort of free. And suddenly all of these people who spend their day-to-day lives watching themselves, making sure that they're not too gay or that people don't right. know they're gay, that suddenly everybody's cutting loose and everybody is, and so we saw all these smiles, people smiling and laughing and flirting and being sexy and being provocative. And, and, and it was just this incredible embrace of life. And, you know, we were probably the only non-Georgian people there or very, very few. Right. And by then, you know, we had, we had some friends in the gay community and, and we see, we saw some people we knew and, and we were there with two female friends and, and it was just, it was this great sort of snapshot of these people who are so reserved and as suddenly everybody's cutting loose and celebrating life and sensuality and the music and, and dancing the night away. And, and, you know, it was sort of connected to gay people around the world. Everybody just wants to be themselves. Everybody just wants to be have fun and be sexy and be free and check out other people and be themselves. And it was it was really a nice little moment. We didn't get home until, uh, I think we got home at 7 a.m. You know, we went and yeah. got burgers and we got home at 7 a.m. Oh, that sounds and like the best awesome. night. I was in Dubai and I went to a kind of a secret club like that. And yeah, yeah, there yeah. was this guy that was dancing on tables. He was dressed like ah. John Travolta. And I guess he was from Saudi Arabia, somebody said, and that, that he had driven like five hours just to be there and have that moment where he could be himself. And then, Isn't that awesome? Yeah, it, it's sad, but it also makes you appreciate the freedoms that you have, you know, and um, it, was, it was sort of fun to see their exuberance. Um, yeah, yeah, and we take it, we take it, we take it so for granted, you know. Like I said, we got to know a lot of uh, gay people in Tbilisi, and you know, th- that was interesting too. You know, you you want to meet people where they are, and they're talking about their lives, and they don't really see themselves as oppressed. You know, yeah. even though they can't come out at work or to the family, or there's pressure to get married, and and of course, I'm thinking, well, you're oppressed, but you just don't know it. But no, I mean, they're just they're at a different stage or a different phase and they're just trying to survive and that's really it's a nice reminder we take you know we're now so impatient with any sort of sign of inequality as we should be we absolutely should be you know and young people today they they demand absolute equality and absolutely everything but it is a nice reminder that we have the luxury to now we're down in the weeds and we're we're you know the Supreme Court decision today. Finally, yeah, you know, thrilling. We, finally, we have we have uh, true legal equality for the first time. And, yeah. But you know the rest of the world is decades behind us, and it's awesome that you know maybe they feel inspired and whatever. It's 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 all part of the same thing. It's all yeah. Part of but it, it helps you appreciate your freedoms, the things that you do really have does. better. It really, really does. Yeah. It absolutely does. Well, it was so fun to talk to you, and I heard Michael in the background. Hello, Michael. Um, <laughs> he says hi. <laughs> I, I, uh, I really um, 
I'm living vicariously through your adventures in the world, and I hope you get to go back out soon. Um, final question. Why do you write? Oh, I think everything in life is all about connections. You know, it's all about making connections. And I want to write because I want to communicate and I want to connect with other people and I want to feel that people are connected to me. And so it's interesting, you know, I feel the same way about travel, that travel is about making connections. And so it is, my life is sort of coming into focus. It's like I'm doing three or four different things that are all towards the same goal. Um, but that's definitely what it is. And it's trying, you know, it's, we watched Black Swan the other day, you know, it's this striving for perfection and for connection and that, that those moments of euphoria, the closer you get, of course, you can't ever reach that perfect oneness with the world, but it's all about that attempt. It's all about that striving to become sort of at one with the world. And that's absolutely what I'm doing with my travel. And that's absolutely what I'm doing with my writing. I love it. I love how it all tied together. Um, this is so great. Thank you for doing this. And, um, uh, everyone should go check out brentharninger.com. Thank you, Dennis. We, we really do frequently uh, talk about you and ask what if, you know, we think, what if we'd lived in Los Angeles? What what would our lives be like yeah. um, if we had lived that life? Instead, our lives took a different turn. But we do frequently think, and we think fondly of the times when, when yeah. we... Uh, you know, I, I agree, and I think fondly of, of you guys as well. You would have been able to go to Shake Shack. I mean, I think that's <laughs> the only big thing that was, was great. But uh, now, um, so... All right. Take care, and um, I'm so glad we finally got to do this. We've been talking about doing it for a long time. Yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Bye.